G'day humans, welcome to Uncomfortable Conversations, the safe space for dangerous ideas. Uh, what a program today, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, you got lots to look forward to today. Ho ho Nelly, I'm jealous of you that I've already had this conversation and you get to enjoy it for the very first time. It's a conversation between myself and Sam Harris. Uh, you can probably tell that because the title of the show uh, is Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Zepps and the title of the episode is Sam Harris. Therefore, uh, through a process of deduction, you might say, you've probably concluded that this is Josh Sepps and Sam Harris in conversation. I give you an award and an applause for uh, concluding that. Sam is a wonderful guy. He's been on the show before. He's one of the few people to be invited on this august program more than once. And I'm honored that he's uh, been willing to do it more than once. I see he's been causing some uh, controversies lately on your social medias. Uh, I'm not sure if this is intentional. I think he's just the t- type of person who people like to misconstrue and misinterpret. And, uh, you know, he says things uh, without fear or favor. He is basically uh, a philosopher's brain in a vat, and uh, he he pays no heed to the possibility that he's framing things in such a way that a person who wants to willfully misrepresent them can very effectively willfully misrepresent them. And I have seen uh, many people doing just such a thing on social media. I would ordinarily not be inclined to have a terribly uncomfortable conversation with Sam because as the title of his podcast suggests, his podcast being called Making Sense, Sam frequently makes a lot of sense. In fact, you might say it's what he prides himself on as a philosopher and a neuroscientist. But I did want to push him on one thing that's been bugging me a little about Sam, which is his association with this whole constellation of characters who, since he collaborated with them, have spun off the rails and gone into cloud cuckoo land. And these are people I can't, I mean, I'm not blaming Sam for this in the sense that I also had collaborations with these people who are alternative media people, who are uh, intellectual dark web figures, who as recently as maybe five years ago, you might have said, well, these are interesting characters who are essentially bucking the media trend and questioning institutional narratives. And they're sick and tired of the conversation being so constrained by conventional media and mainstream outlets and institutions and bureaucracies, I don't know, public health officials. And they're doing doing the Lord's work by probing questions in bullshit-free ways that defy uh, propriety and politeness and niceties and groupthink, they're independent thinkers. These independent thinkers, many of them, uh, are just now bonkers, ladies and gentle persons. That's the only kind word for it, and that's not a very kind word. They're, they're batshit crazy. They're, how about that for a kind word? Uh, and so I wanted to talk to Sam. See, Sam and I ha- have a bit of a history in the sense that many of those people who I'm talking about, and we'll we'll start naming some names. Don't you worry about that. If you're a little confused and you're going, but uh, Josh, Josh, old buddy, old boy, uh, who are you talking about exactly? Then I say to you, firstly, don't call me old buddy, old boy. Okay, this is not a 1920s uh, sitcom. Uh, secondly, I'm going to get to all those names in the conversation with Sam, but I wanted to pull him up on like, how does he feel? about having had these relationships and, and associations uh, with such people. So that's that comprises a significant portion of the conversation today, and I think it's going to be useful. I think it's going to be useful for you to hear. 
It was certainly useful for me to flesh out. And I think it's going to be useful for Sam to have this opportunity to actually, in a deep and thoughtful and clear-headed way, articulate what happened and where the real differences of opinion and strategy are and where there may still be some common ground. Uh, if you're new to this show, if, if you're hearing ads in this episode, then you have the regular free feed and that's fine and I uh, hope you're enjoying it and God bless you for it. Uh, if you're not hearing ads, then that means you have been shrewd enough to go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen and get your own private ad-free feed. It also gets you access to my newsletter every week, which includes links to some of my best ABC radio segments. I host the ABC uh, radio afternoon show on ABC Radio Sydney from 12.30 to 3.30 Sydney time uh, every weekday. Uh, so you can get a, a weekly newsletter and uh, bonus segments and, and all that kind of jazz by going to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen. Uh, that'll ordinarily, that will be, there'll be a paid, there'll be paid tiers for that. And I think you can already subscribe to them, but everything is free and uh, throughout, throughout January, because we've only just launched this little experiment. And if you, if you're new to the show and you have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, welcome, firstly, and I hope uh, you're not the type of person who says, old buddy, old boy, because I'll boot you out of here quick, smart. Uh, but if you want to know more about the show, go to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash about. Uh, you can tell that that'll get you information about the show because the word about is right there in the suffix. Uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash about. Uh, and if you are uh, one of our subscribers to the super primo, uh, superior, premier, high-end, uh, exclusive, elite, select, deluxe, uh, uh, classy, first-rate, uh, top-notch, uh, uh, upscale. Hmm, I should have uh, looked up a thesaurus for this, really, shouldn't I? Anyway, uh, the premium uh, subscription. Then you get uh, not only no ads, you also get bonus segments with every guest where I ask them uh, like first date questions. I pepper them with some Rorschach tests that gives you a unique insight into their psyche that you wouldn't get from a conventional interview. Uh, you get some Ask Me Anythings where you get to, to ask me uh, questions and turn the tables, if you will, on the interviewer. Uh, solo rants where you can hear more about what's banging around in my noggin. Uh, recommendations of things that I've uh, read that are interesting and intriguing, things that I've seen. And most importantly, you'll get at least two additional episodes a month, uh, which will be uh, uh, paywalled premium episodes uh, from regular subscribers. So it's worth going to uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash listen and getting your premium feed. However, this episode is entirely free with the one and only Sam Harris. If you don't know who he is, He's a neuroscientist, philosopher, New York Times bestselling author. Uh, he started out as a bit of a, an anti-religion firebrand. His first book, The End of Faith, which he wrote, I think while he was still in graduate school doing his PhD in neuroscience, was a post-9-11 broadside against, well, specifically Islam, but basically religion in general. And because he was then accused, or perhaps not because, I mean, he was subsequently accused of being a, an anti-Muslim bigot because he had a problem uh, with uh, jihadism and Islamic terrorism. Uh, and so he went on to write Letter to a Christian Nation, which is maybe the most succinct uh, and, uh, and, and beautiful little uh, book to give to any Christians who you might want to disabuse of their faith. He's the author of seven books in total, but really this latest incarnation of his career uh, as uh, a, a coach of mindfulness and uh, a student of consciousness, uh, 
is the most interesting phase. Uh, he's created an app called Waking Up to help people uh, explore what it what it means to sort of step away from the clutter of your own mind and to get present to your own conscious awareness. And his podcast, as I mentioned, is called Making Sense. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the one and only Sam Harris. I don't. I, I'm, I'm a bit baffled. And are you? Are you? How do you feel about about it? Are you shell shocked by the extent to which the number of people who we had reasonably thought were worth talking to are not really that worth talking to anymore? Yeah. Well, again, I, I don't know what the ground truth is here because I, I feel like, and this is perhaps you've heard about my leaving Twitter of and my course. reasons for for leaving. Yeah. Uh, but this was really at the center of it because I, I got the sense that I was, that, you know, that tw- Twitter was you know, one making people fairly crazy and and certainly pulling out the worst in them. But then it was also, and, and, and one of the reasons why it was doing this is it, I think it was giving everyone a distorted picture of everyone else. And the, and those pictures were sort of mutually amplifying. So I, you know, personally, I was just getting the sense that I was seeing a uh, misleadingly negative picture of everybody, including people I know. Right. And I mean, I don't know, I don't happen to know Lindsay well. I, I think I've only met him once, but, um, I mean, Twitter was clearly not good for him, and he, you know, I mean, let me look at it, clinically not good for him. I mean, the weird thing I is, say, um, part of yeah. his whole shtick. The last time we were talking, I don't want to call it a shtick. Part of what he was saying uh, the last time we were speaking was like that the left is way too up its own ass on Twitter and needs to go out and touch the grass. I mean, he was literally saying like humanity is huh. not going to survive right. unless we get offline and start touching the grass and start looking at the sky and everything. And I'm, I listened back to it, and I was like, so you're not unaware of that problem and like i don't want to throw him under the bus because i actually think he's like a genius like i think there's a class Mm. of people and i just had eric on the show again weinstein who i hadn't spoken with Mm -hmm. in a while also clearly a genius uh and i find myself halfway through the chat going like there are so many things that i'd have to pedal back on in order for us to be actually bumping into anything interesting here that I don't quite even know how to navigate this because there's so much so much of a gulf. Like every three seconds, there's something that's being dropped that requires mm. an entire universe of kind of correction from my perspective that we're on different, we're on parallel train tracks. There's just no intersection. Yeah, well, I, I, we should talk about, if we were going to talk about individual cases, we, we should differentiate them because there's there's much less daylight between me and Eric on any interesting question and there is between me and, and several of the other people we might definitely talk about, let's talk you know, about the generic phenomenon and later we can talk yeah. about people if you feel comfortable but yeah let's just talk about yeah. the phenomenon of, of this co- of, of a certain cohort of people becoming increasingly uh conspiratorial yeah well I, I think twitter had a lot to do with that i mean you know it's obviously a, a larger internet phenomenon here's this this algorithm that everyone is running to do just quote do their own research is producing very mixed results and in, in some cases obviously pathological ones i'm not sure if majid is still looking for ukrainian nazis but you know that, that's where i left him he was he was all about yeah. the ukrainian nazis um so it it's uh it's not to say there aren't any ukrainian nazis i'm sure there are but it's just 
to, to have grabbed that side of the problem of Russia's invasion of Ukraine it's peculiar, and, well, and I don't. I mean, wouldn't he say, Sam, that that precisely that framing is what's wrong with the world? The idea that there's a side that he has now grabbed onto, and that we have to think of it as being, you know, pointing out the flaws in in Ukraine, or pointing out the weird hypocrisy of a mainstream media that prior to the invasion was concerned about corruption in Ukraine and far, mm. the far right in Ukraine, and now all of a sudden doesn't talk about it at all. Um, it, that 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 binary thinking is the problem. Like I heard, who was it on Rogan? I think it was Kurt. It might have been, but you know, there's a it, whether it's Greenwald or Taibbi or you know, there's there's mm. this this case that says you don't have to be pro-Russia invasion to nonetheless not want to be hopping on a bandwagon and thinking that there are, that you have to pick a side, right. Yeah, I mean, they they might say something like that. I think it's you know being against Putin was always a pretty clear, bright line. I mean, it's seeing the problem with Putin, seeing the the pathology of uh, thinking we could collaborate with him when he's poisoning people with neurotoxins in London, and you know disappearing journalists and all the rest. I mean, it's just not that was never tenable. And I'm not quite sure why so many people on the right. I guess some people on the left too lost sight of that. Anyway, I, I just think that the generic problem is trust in institutions, the media especially, but you know, institutions being really everything of substance, the government and any official organ of heretofore real information, the scientific establishment, universities, pharmaceutical companies. It's just trust in all of these institutions has eroded so quickly. Obviously, COVID policy had a lot to do with that. Trump had a lot to do with that. But the the net result has been, we now have this, you know, what I'm considering a, a kind of new religion of contrarianism and conspiracy thinking, which, uh, again, it has everyone doing their own research. And almost no one is qualified to do the research they're doing. And it's um, it's obvious. Mm. Um, you've got Brett Weinstein doing a hundred episodes of his podcast in a row or thereabouts on the terrors of the mRNA vaccines and the sinister, shadowy cabal of people who have suppressed information about the life-saving power of ivermectin. It's completely crazy, right? And yet, you know, I, I, and I'm not sure what in each case, I'm not sure what explains it. I mean, there there are people who came into this with more than the average taste for conspiracy theories in the first place, and, mm. and Brett was certainly a person like that. Uh, so the, you know, you, now you see the conspiracist in full flower uh, in in the right conditions, but uh, still, it I don't know, know what explains it, and. It's it really has been a, a perfect storm of loss of credibility, and understandably so. It's, it's not that I haven't criticized these institutions myself. I mean, you know, the the woke mind virus ha- really has spread in in many of them, and, and you you have science getting politicized in ways that is truly dysfunctional. But what we're left with is the assumption on the parts of so many erstwhile smart people that the vast majority of the most qualified experts on on many, many questions, whether you're talking about what wars to fight or what medicines to give your kids, have been captured by sinister 
influences of power or just such comprehensively bad incentives that basically everyone who you should have been able to trust yesterday is now wrong about very important topics. And the outlier voices shrieking in the wilderness are right about mm. all of them, no matter how much they may seem like crackpots. Uh, I mean, you, you just you, you poke you know half of these guys and they'll start telling you how they were denied a Nobel Prize. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just... <laughs> I mean, part of the problem, though, is also I I am so frustrated with my colleagues in the media, uh, with the way that journalists frame this stuff, with the level of kind of smug certainty that they have. Mm -hmm. And I I wonder, I mean, I'm trying to run the experiment in in my own small way of seeing whether or not you can turn down the volume on all that bullshit by turning up the volume on the mainstream media, addressing some of the things that these people feel that the mainstream media is not addressing. Like the other day, a former head of the Australian Medical Association came out, uh, she wrote a, a submission to Parliament, which is looking into long COVID, about the vaccine injury that she'd had. Uh, it was she, her, her and her wife had so both had side effects from um, an mRNA vaccine. Now, this mm. is a former, this, she's a physician, she's a former parliamentarian, she's the former head of the Australian Medical Association, and I had her on my mainstream, like, public broadcast radio show for half an hour at prime time at 8 a.m. with the, uh, 8.30 rather, with the with a cardiologist, one of Australia's leading cardiologists, who also is moderately concerned about the level of pericarditis that he's seeing. He's still very keen to point out that the risk from getting fully blown COVID is 10 times, you're 10 times likelier to get heart inflammation. Mm -hmm. And when you do get it, it's likelier to be severe heart inflammation from COVID, from catching COVID, uh, than you are from getting an mRNA vaccine. But if you're a young male in particular, he's like, well, just get AstraZeneca or Novavax instead of Pfizer or Moderna. And that solves the, the problem. Now, the fact that I did that, I think I was the only person as far as I'm aware, in all of Australian mainstream media to devote a proper amount of primetime airtime to the question of vaccine side effects and how we should start thinking about balancing the pros and cons of vaccination rather than simply saying, insisting that vaccines are always a good idea for everyone. And, you know, similarly with trans stuff, I don't think there's a single other person who's talking about Who's you know? I simply interviewed the head of the Psychiatrist Association about his concerns about affirmative care for juveniles and the inability of therapists to ask young people with gender dysphoria about other things that are going on in their lives because to do so would be to be perceived as being transphobic and trying to steer them away from their true gender identity. Again, there's this groupthink and... I hope that if we can get out of our own asses as journalists, there'll just be less of a swamp in which all of this nonsense can happen. I don't know how confident you are that that is a solution or not. It's hard to know. I really, I, mean, I see the problem. I, I see the thing that all of the contrarians are reacting to. I mean, you just described part of it. And, you know, that when you see information being politicized and when you hear that, truly reputable people are being silenced or ignored or, or shadow banned on Twitter or whatever it is. It's catnip for anyone who wants to connect all of the dots in a way that seems sinister. The crazy interpretation is that this is all being orchestrated from st- some star chamber somewhere at the, you know, the, 
at Davos. And this is all about, uh, you know, a, a comprehensive effort to get people to bend the knee to increasingly stringent, you know, misuses of, of power, mm. you know, state power, right? So, I mean, I, I think that's where Majid went at one point on this, yeah. right? So, like, yeah. all the COVID policies were really just softening us up for the the Orwellian boot that would never stop stomping on our faces. I mean, I just, I do, I just think that's bonkers, right? It's not that that everyone is being controlled from the top. What you have are uh, social dynamics uh, in you know, largely in be getting leveraged algorithmically in social media and everyone's desperate efforts to, uh, you know, monetize what they can monetize and maintain their reputations. Then you, you have the changing winds of, of political opinion that everyone is reacting to on the right and the left, right? So you have, you know, on the right, you have the people who will never say a bad word about Trump until it becomes politically expedient to admit that he's a dangerous moron, and then they will begin doing that, right? But for years, they wouldn't say anything in public because it was synonymous with the end of their their hopes as a, you know, as a Republican in, in the U.S. Mm. Um, so it's just, it's, it's not mysterious as to why people hold the line on um, obviously dishonest points of, you know, policy or, 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 or feigned opinion and yeah, we so we do see that to a remarkable degree in in the centers of cultural power, you know, the media and academia and Hollywood. I mean, it's just so yeah. It's and I get why the right has gone berserk in the face of all that, and then and obviously the the right's going berserk seems to justify the excesses of of wokeness, you know, woke hysteria on the left. So it's, again, they've they've been mutually amplifying, but they're really they're two things you had to keep in view all this time and so few people managed it I mean, it was really like a, a needle that needed to be threaded here and on the on the one hand again this is a this may be somewhat provincial because this is the american view of things but yep. it's it's um certainly where my head has been at for, for for at least five or six years on the one hand you you had to recognize how appalling trump and trumpism was and and is and are. I mean, it's just it's just yes, there were moments that there there were pieces of information that were spun unfairly to his disadvantage and and, and misinformation, right? So yes, there apparently there were no p tapes, right? I mean, there were there, you know, the Steele dossier, right? There, there's a long <laughs> list of things that were trumped up, and he wasn't literally uh, installed by the Kremlin, right? He exactly. wasn't in collusion but, with the Russians in the 1980s to try to be a Manchurian candidate. Um, yeah. Can you just can you just explain to people when you say it's obvious that Donald Trump was so objectionable? Uh, why? In, can you do one? Can you do a one sentence? Well, the the worst thing he did. I mean, this this came at the end, but this is really the thing that if you if you couldn't have, if you couldn't figure out who Trump was for four years, the twenty twenty election should have removed the, the the blinders from your eyes, right? I mm. mean, it, we had a president, a sitting president who would not, simply would not commit to a peaceful transfer of power. He was given multiple chances to do this. It was obvious he was going to try to steal the election even before the election was run, right? He was calling it fraudulent as a way of preparing the ground to claim victory no matter what happened. And we did not have a peaceful transfer of power. 
And he did everything he could, including you know, putting his vice president's life in jeopardy to try to pressure the system to hold on to power totally illegitimately. He mm. knew he didn't win the election, right? So yeah. this is, and he was he, being told all day. He was, yes. And, he, and so he was happy to try to convince half of America that their democracy had been stolen from them while trying to do that very thing, right? I mean, it's the most cynical moment perhaps in American history. As far as I know, there's no American president who ever tried to hold on to power in that way. No. Well, did you uh, hear Liz Cheney at the end of the January 6th commission? Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. talking about Reagan, quoting Reagan in 1981 about the mm. transition of power, they're basically saying Trump is the first president in the history of America to not do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's where you know, I'm just trying to in, I'm just trying to figure out how we avoid his, the charge of Trump derangement syndrome in by making a succinct case. I mean, I think for me, yeah, the, right. fundamentally, it comes down to the man didn't know anything about anything re- that was relevant to leading a big country. He's not interested in politics. He wasn't interested in finding out anything about anything about the world or geopolitics or how countries are run. He wasn't interested in reading his briefings. He wasn't actually interested in being a head of government. He was interested in being a head of state because he likes the bling, but he wasn't, mm. he's not, he's basically uninterested. And then you layer on top of that, he doesn't give a fuck about democracy or yeah. anything, any of the institutions that have sustained America for the past couple of hundred years. So you combine those two things together. You've got a, a person who's who doesn't know anything about the job he's applying for, isn't interested in finding out anything about the job that he's applying for, and doesn't respect any of the institutions that have sustained, like, civilization for the past couple of hundred years. For me, that's, that's like... Well, yeah, but the, the, the added piece, which really we can't lose sight of, is that all of that, all of those disqualifying characteristics are anchored to perhaps the most morbidly selfish and narcissistic personality we've ever be yes. held. Yeah. Right. I mean, like literally, I have, I don't believe I've ever seen another human being like him. And this goes back long before he, his campaign for the presidency. I mean, he's just, this, this is a guy who would show up at a, a ribbon cutting to a charity that he didn't give any money to pretending to have given money to it to lie about his association with the charity. Right. I mean, this is a guy, this is a guy who's <laughs> for whom golf, I mean, if you know, if you know anything about golf, I mean, if you know anything about the moral norms of golf, how people have forfeited tournaments that they've won because they forgot to sign their card at the end. I mean, golf is the most insanely honor-based sport you've ever heard of. And golf is the center of this man's life. This is a man who has lied about winning golf tournaments he never entered. Right? I mean, it's unbelievable. Like that, that is the equivalent of murdering children. If, you, if golf is the center of your life, you are morally insane to behave that way. Um, so anyway, the real Trump derangement syndrome, I mean, it's, yes, it's cute that they have a phrase for this, which has inoculated them against acknowledging any of these problems. But the real Trump derangement syndrome was not to have seen how appalling and dangerous and, and deranging it was to have a person like this get anywhere near the Oval Office. It, okay, it's we're not going to mortify. Now I'm going to promise the listener that with a word that the syllable Trump is not going to come yes, out of our lips. Not, not going to pass of, our lips. For the, that, rest yes. of this, for okay. the rest of this. Anyway, that, that, I, so was, I, was that. In middle, I was in mid-sentence when you derailed me with my, you provoked me with my Trump derangement. Oh, no, I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done but, it. Um, but the, so yeah. that was the first thing you had to keep in view if you wanted to be 
politically sane and honest in the last half decade. The other thing you had to keep in view was how deranged the left got with its identitarian politics, wokeism for lack of a better word, because that was a that was the second biggest political story of the last five years. And it again, it was amplified as a reaction to Trumpism. And it seemed in its craziness on the left, it seemed to justify much of Trumpism, right? Now, the crucial piece is that an awareness of one of these problems, however keen, did not cover for your, for your blindness of the other, right? Like if you, if you could only, I mean, so many people only had half the story here. So many people only focused on what was wrong with Trump. Mm. And so many people only focused on what was wrong with wokeism. And in banging on about half the story, they were essentially carrying water for the lunatics on the other side of the divide, right? Mm. So you had to thread this needle. You had to be able to keep both in view. And very few people managed that. And I'm not quite sure why. It, it seemed pretty simple to manage that. But that explains how you know, so many of the p- people we we you know we have begun to name or, or could name became unreachable. I mean, I mean, they're just this is not a group of people who are connected by. I mean, we are connected to that group of people. You are connected to that group of people, and I wonder what the there's a, there's got to be a lesson here. Like, if you knew back then what you know now about Margin and Brett, and you know you can throw in Dave Rubin or whoever mm-hmm. else might be, would you have welcomed them? as conversational companions as you did? Well, they're, you know, they're different. Again, they're gradations of the horror here. Um, but uh, I can't pretend to understand what's happened with Brett. I just don't, I don't understand how you do 100 podcasts on COVID and vaccines. I mean, I, I, I got to think, I, I, just, I, I just don't know. I mean, I actually don't have a theory of mind there. Um, all Can I, I offer is one? That, yeah. Sure. I mean, it's pure speculation, but it's something along the lines of the media has failed hopelessly in its job at properly interrogating uh, what's happened here. And so I probably need to start providing the other side in the interests of open debate so that people at least hear one small voice from the fringe to counter the deluge of unthinking parroting that's going on from public health bureaucrats and Fauci and the mainstream press. And then once you open that door a crack and you start playing in that space, you start to become more convinced by the things that you hear. And then you get a combination of audience capture and Mm. an ideological trajectory that gets hard to get off. And then you're like, you know what I'm doing? I'm kind of doing God's work here in the sense that nobody else gives a shit about this. And you know what? Now I noticed this other thing that was also weird that my genius brain needs to start nibbling on. And so like a rat with a piece yeah. of cheese, like now you're off to the to the races. I mean, that's the best that I can do. Well, yeah, audience capture does explain a lot of this you know, ac- across the board. I mean, it certainly explains Ruben. And um, it's a hard question. I mean, I, you know, Ruben became far more cynical than I would have thought possible. And it's very depressing. You know, I mean, he, he definitely, he, he was a friend. He's not a friend anymore. And it's, it's entirely the result of what I got to think, I mean, Twitter's at the bottom of so much of this. Twitter is where people are getting their information, spreading their information, 
noticing the the dents in their reputation, trying to maintain their reputations. It's a funhouse mirror in which everyone is seeing everyone else as this kind of grotesque and reacting on that basis. And it's um it is deranging. And so yeah, I mean I, I, I know that I know that none of these guys are as bad as they have seemed to me on Twitter. And they're not really as bad as they have become as a result of reacting to what has been you know promulgated about them and by them on Twitter. Um, I do. I really do think Twitter runs through a lot of this. But, but I mean, um, your analysis is interesting there, but it's also not as self-reflective as I'd like it to be in the sense that so many friends who you've had or who you've publicly mm-hmm. defended as intellectuals have turned out to be either bad people or, you know, that you can either, well, look, let's not ascribe motives to it, but have, have turned out to hold ridiculous beliefs. Uh, and many voices yeah. who you once enthusiastically engaged with are now diametrically opposed to what you stand for. Uh, like, are you a bad yeah. judge of character? Well, in truth, it's not that many people. I mean, and, and some people were are people who were often included in, in a same sentence with these people, but these are people who I either have never met or just, you know, have had dinner with once, right? I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I never right. knew who well, Gad I mean, Sad was. Yeah, so I mean, people talk Gad, about Gad Sad, Ruben, Marjad, yeah. Brett, Eric, maybe Peter Bogosian, maybe Jordan Peterson. Uh, I guess that's probably it. It's right. still a, I mean, you know, it's, it, it's still the intellectual dark web, which you always, I know, sort of ridiculed, nonetheless like, like, was Like a, Candace Owens, you know, somebody right. I've never met and, and it, was, it was never, it never should have been no. Uh, allied with, you know, I mean, and she's somebody who I've kind of, kind of gone to war with on Twitter, but... Uh, no, but pointing out that there are fringe cases that, uh, you know, don't fit the uh, the rule doesn't mean that the rule doesn't exist. Yeah, no, but there's just a couple of people, really, and it's, in Rubin's case, it's, it's 100% what Trump did to our politics and to his career, right? He, he just noticed that his audience was squarely in Trumpistan, and that I mean, it's, it's he's, he's the the quintessential case of audience capture. Yeah, right? I, yeah. I, I went on his podcast. You know, I, I helped him. I literally launched his podcast. I think it was his first. Yeah. Interview. Yeah. And you know, it was just and a you, love I mean, fest. You, you not only launched but, his podcast, you launched his career as a quote unquote intellectual in the sense that I mean, I knew the guy very very vaguely back in New York when he was a gay television host. And I just moved to New York in 04, 05, uh, 06, I guess. He was friends with my roommate mm-hmm. in Chelsea. And, you know, I had him on HuffPost Live before he was anybody. And then when he got his, like, Larry King gig and stuff like that. And he is quite clear that it was seeing you on uh, Bill Maher right. with Ben Affleck that inspired him to transition from being, like, I don't know what he was, a comedian a television presenter to... a uh, you know, pursuing a life of the arts and letters and, and ideas and philosophy and everything, which I'm quite upfront about saying, and I don't think he would disagree. He's not very good at like that's not it's above his pay grade. It's not that is not his station in life, and so I don't think it's that surprising that he has been proven to not be terribly clever. Nonetheless, uh, yes, not to ascribe too much godlike power, but in his case, like you are a you are a you are a god. I mean, I don't know what to say about it. I I I feel like I mean, I'm just 
I was surprised at every stage along the way that he was, I mean, it was like invasion of the body snatchers, right? Like uh, at a certain point, you're just not getting anything recognizable out of someone on some very important topics. You know, he he literally never would admit that there was anything wrong, anything wrong with Trump, anything, right? It was was just a, a cultic level of denialism mm. you know again the, the the true trump derangement syndrome yes um i mean the old like the, the closest he ever got was you know yes i understand that he's a crass businessman and that you know he offends people right mm. okay but maybe we need a crass businessman who offends people to shake things up right maybe mm. that's how we right that that was like the closest you know which is not even getting your your toe in the water of an honest appraisal of this man and and the consequences of all his line and and yet i could admit and i could check every box he could or any of the any of these other people could uh, against the wokeness right like I, I i get what james lindsay and gad and ruben and everyone else and candace uh, and ben shapiro are all up in arms about around the crazy level of dishonesty and overreach and hypocrisy on mm. the far left, mm. right? And the way that's vitiated our our mainstream institutions. So that the far what the far left has done has actually compromised the Washington Post and the New York Times and Nature and the Lancet and all of it, right? And I and I I've devoted I've devoted even more time on my podcast to criticizing all of that and worrying about all of that than I have to bashing Trump. Mm. Right, because it's it, because it's it's more intellectually interesting. It's, it's it's harder to figure out what's wrong with Black Lives Matter than it is to figure out what's wrong with the Tiki Torch guys in Charlottesville. Yeah. Well, it's right? harder to figure out in a way that is that makes sense, yeah, and that is yeah. that does justice to the history of of like white oppression of black people. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, and doesn't just I mean, sweep, they, sweep it on the right. They're very good people. They're very good people who are confused, sincerely confused about Black Lives Matter. And talking about all of that and unwinding all of that is is a, a genuine public service that requires some use of intelligence and some kind of ethical compass. Yeah, there, there's almost nothing that you need to say about the problem of white supremacy or neo Nazis. I mean, it's just it's it, what's wrong with it is right is is is, yeah. is right on its surface. I mean, just the, the the words I'm using to describe it, you know, announce what's wrong with it. it just it's absolutely mystifying to me. That the, the pe- people we've named, and again, I, again, it's it's injustice to all of them to to not be precise in mm. including them and or excluding them in each specific sentence. Because no, exactly. it doesn't, That's it true. doesn't capture yeah. Brett. What I'm saying, no, now, but, and I, and it certainly doesn't yeah. capture Eric. And I want to, and I feel bad that, about having, uh, in a de facto way, included him in any way in this in this group. Yeah. Actually, because when I said earlier that he was like dropping bombs that were kind of so hard for me to pick up that I couldn't keep up with the pace of sort of uh, modifications that I had to make. Um, mm-hmm. That That's simply a way of recognizing that he he is looking at a world that is much more full of threats than the world that I perceive. It's not to say right. that he is off down some conspiratorial rabbit hole the way that I think a, a Lindsay or a Majid have become. So let me just yeah. make that, and, and, that clear. And he's, all, he's always been allergic to Trump and he's always, ha- exactly. he's always understood the woke problem. It's, so Eric, I mean, Eric is a is a friend and and we disagree about a few things but he's and and in this space we just have very different factory settings around perceiving conspiracy 
Right? Yes. So he he has a taste for conspiracy thinking that I certainly don't have. But it's not to say that he's always wrong, obviously, and that people do conspire. And given his settings, he will detect a conspiracy before I will. And, and, and you know, I'll have to admit I was wrong about that when it, when it proves to be true. Um, so, you know, there's that. But it's, you know, that's that's the difference between us. But he's. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I I don't include him in in any no. litany of, of of problems. I mean, I'm interested. Medicine. I'm quite interested to hear you talk like this in quite in what seems to be a fairly relaxed and sort of un self conscious way. Because I've felt in the past, maybe when we've spoken, you have a very admirable instinct towards decorum and civility and privateness. I think you're quite a private person, and I have struggled with the extent to which it's appropriate to just talk openly and in a bullshit-free way about friends of mine's transgressions. Like, on the one hand, dystopia for me is an East German state where everything true has to be said behind closed doors, and the only thing that you can say in public is nice platitudes. Um, On the other hand... It's also dystopian to live in a world of public shaming and call-out culture where everyone is throwing everybody, throwing their friends under a bus because of some transgression. So I'm loath to smack down people publicly. Yeah, me But too. when I was contacted by a, a journalist, a credible journalist who was writing a piece on Ruben for Quillette and has just published like a 4,000-word piece, uh, I was mm. happy to be quoted a couple of times uh, expressing about Dave, things that I would be happy to say to Dave. Um, And I think I should be able to say about people in public what I would say to them in private. And, yeah, yeah, I wonder how you think about that that balance. Well, yeah, the the ethics of this, and I've I've, um, said something about this before, I think on my own podcast, Um, I'm still confused about the ethics of this. I mean, it's just as you said, like to what degree... Does loyalty to a friend or a past friend obstruct, and, and and to what degree should it obstruct your candor when you see that friend doing something in a public facing way that is that you consider reprehensible? Right. I mean, it's like, how to what degree should you treat friends and strangers differently when you're talking about the behavior of public people? And I, I'm just not sure what the right balances there and if i mean i just obviously the fact that somebody was a friend or is a friend matters and uh but maybe maybe we're too quick to dunk on strangers right yeah right maybe maybe being a friend gives you more standing in fact i mean maybe it's more appropriate for me to to talk about dave rubin and majid nawaz publicly precisely because i Mm -hmm. would feel liberated to to say, Dave, you're so full of shit these days. What are you doing? You know, you've become a hack, dude. You are a hack. You're just a Trumpy partisan right. hack. If we'd had four beers, you know, then that is what I would say. So maybe I can say that. And like, Majid, I get it that, you know, you were traumatized and thrown into an Egyptian prison by, a con- by you know, a conspiratorial takeover of government. That doesn't mean that every government in the world is trying to conduct a conspiratorial threat takeover of you. Like, Calm the fuck right. down, and so maybe I don't know. I think that's. I think I for me that's okay. I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. Again, these are all different cases, but I mean, it, I think where I spoke about this before, and this is a, kind of a bright line for me. You know, I I've never met Candace Owens, right? And it's clear, and you know, I've said some fairly derogatory things about her 
I mean, I think I said something like she's a an, an ignoramus and a, and a blowhard of mythological proportions or something like that. She, she threw, threw that back. <laughs> Tell to us what he really thinks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just it's incredible when you see her, you know, messaging to millions of people about COVID and but vaccines. But who is she? And, like, I don't even know. Yeah. I mean, why does it even need what? Why does it even need talking about? What authority does she have? Like, what has she right. done? What but has the, she achieved? What? Like, I don't even. Crucial, I, yeah, but I raise, I raise it, I raise her here not to disparage her yet again, but just to point out that I'm sure that if, if I had had dinner with her several times, uh, and and got the best of Candace, I mean, just the face to face, charismatic woman who I'm sure she's fun to hang out with. Then what would I have said about her in public when I saw her messaging in that way on on Twitter? Well, what do you in, think? I think I would have been forced to recalibrate what I said. I think I would have decided, okay, maybe it's not worth going after her for this, or maybe she would have to do it 10 times rather than five times before I finally blew a fuse. But that's and, not very credible, is it? I mean, that almost sounds corrupt. Well, well, no. I mean, I think it is corrupting. I mean, if you're a journalist, I, you know, I think there's a norm around not becoming friends with the the people you report on, right? I mean, you tell me uh, if, yeah. if that's the case. And if you are friends, then you know, when you do throw them under the bus because of your duty to the truth and to the public, you know, then you go like, "Sorry, dude, this is the way it goes." You know, you knew this coming in. It's almost like a gladiator fight. Like I'm going to stab you in the heart, and that, that was the game. Many of these people are, are people who I really to, to have called them friends was. An exaggeration, because I, you know, in, in the case of some of these people, uh, you know, I, I haven't even met them, or I met them once. Uh, in Ruben's case, he just, in my experience, he got inducted into a political cult, right? And I, I couldn't get him out, and it was very depressing. Um, I mean, he was not somebody who I saw all that much, but he was, he was definitely somebody who I would occasionally have dinner with, and um, it was just a bummer. He decided what his business model required. So I, I got derailed when I was in the process of telling you this. So the second time I went on his show, I, I saw what was coming back to me in the comments. And that was the first time I discovered, okay, his audience is just 100% Trump. Right. And, 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 and he, made, he made that discovery at some point. And it's the very essence of audience capture. I mean, mm. he just, he would, he, he has no career outside of Trumpistan. I would argue that is a, a fate of his own making, but he has made that. He's got both feet in Pizzagate adjacent crazy town. And it's, you know, I, I'm sure he and Candace and everyone are, are, are going to try to move into some respectable conservative orbit now that Trump's political fortunes seem to be unraveling, if in fact they are unraveling. And, you know, he'll be on the DeSantis train and all of that. But hmm. it, it's just to not have been able to acknowledge that there was anything at all problematic about, you know, a sitting president not committing to a peaceful transfer of power. I mean, I, I just, I don't know how to have a conversation after that. No, so, I mean, you, I think you're, you know, I think you're being generous in ascribing more strategy to it than maybe there even was. I mean, when people, it's like a bit like people, when people ask me, do I think that Trump believed the things that he said? I almost like go into Jordan Peterson meta truth like mode where I'm like mm. I'm not even sure he has a relationship to what is true and what is false that maps onto like physics and ontology and the universe. I think it's just like that what is true is kind of what works and what functions and so I think I think of Dave a bit like that. I just think Dave was a an enthusiastic puppy dog and he saw you and he was like I want a, I want a bit of that and then when he grew 
you know, he grew up, he just started doing the tricks that he liked. And I don't even think that he thinks that he's captured by his audience. I just think that he's a lightweight. And so he, he just says, you know, things that, that work and they fun- they function. Uh, anyway, enough about him. Um, because yeah. uh, uh, there's so much that I want to get to about like artificial intelligence and stuff like that. And I don't want to keep you all day. Uh, but um, just before we get off this question of like, who we're surrounding ourselves with and everything. I, one thing that I kind of think of as well is this whole question of platforming people. And, mm-hmm. you know, I saw Lex Friedman and Kanye and yeah, then the whole, the whole era of Joe Rogan being tried to be deplatformed from Spotify. And, you know, I was on Joe's show at the time that that was all blowing up back in January. And then I think about, well, okay, I go back like through my past podcasts and your past podcasts and i think about people like charles murray who you had on the show who now i saw tweeting about something positive about what do you, i don't even know what this outfit is but it's some anti-semitic like pro-western chauvinist <laughs> pro- propertarianism have you heard of this the propertarianism no. institute this bloke no. kurt doolittle allegedly has asperger's and an iq of 165 and he spent the past 30 years building this sort of slightly fascist, eugenic, Darwinist <laughs> thing about restoring Western civilization's tradition mm-hmm. of excellence, truth, duty, beauty, sovereignty, nationalism, and the natural law of reciprocity. And it's basically saying that Semitic cultures are parasiting Western hosts. It's a very social mm-hmm. Darwinist outfit. I mean, I, don't know, I didn't know anything about it until I saw Charles Murray, <laughs> uh, tw- you know, retweeting this guy saying, oh, I think I... I, I clearly need to listen more to you and this is very wise and and they're all chummy. And then I'm like, well, hang on. Mm. So we're getting stuck into Lex for platforming Kanye. How do you feel about having spoken to Charles? Well, this guilt by association game is just going to, I mean, no one will survive it, right? I mean, this is something that- Well, some will. I mean, people who don't tweet favorably about eugenicists will. Well, yeah, but it, this is another symptom of, what's wrong with Twitter. I mean, no one apparently can take the time to figure out who anyone is. And everyone seems to have the same stature, you know, especially in the, in the post valid blue checkmark days. Um, every, it's just, just, you, you, you can't figure out who anyone is and you can see, you can well, see let's Elon pause it as a hypothetical on. that Charles knows who this guy is and is, and plays footsie with his ideas. Right. But I mean, like even Elon is signal boosting people who are like, Pizzagate lunatics. Yeah, he's also obviously signal boosted Kanye significantly before. Right, but uh, then isn't then do we just have to accept that Lex? Okay, Lex talks to Kanye, and that's fine. Well, again, we do everyone a disservice by not going case by case. I mean, Lex is a a very specific case, and I and I told Lex what I thought about his podcast with Kanye. And uh, I mean, just to, to wind back to one thing you said, which I think is worth articulating. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying anything in public about anybody that I wouldn't say to their face. Yes, right, and that I haven't said Me neither. to their face. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've told I've told Dave exactly what I thought about him. Yeah, we're not talking shit behind anyone's backs. I've yeah. also tweeted about Lex's podcast, and I got a lot of shit for criticizing Lex. Yeah, and, I, and I've tried to and I've tried to perform private interventions with people before things have spilled out in public, and. You know that happened with Candace, and that I mean, so I'm sure Gad knows what I think about him. And you know, I, my my fear all of this is is boring 
but you know, to be airing this kind of dirty laundry. I mean, I just think but, it's kind of necessary because it's at the forefront of everybody's minds. Like, it's what I get most on Twitter whenever I, whenever your name comes up. And so I think it's worth... I'm not going to spend more than more than one hour on this, I guarantee. So you've got six and a half okay. minutes to, fin- to finish okay. off this question about platforming. Yeah. I mean, the, the platforming thing is uh, a little hard to decide in, in the abstract because it really matters what you do in the conversation, right? So it, like... Lex could have spoken with Kanye in such a way as to have produced a useful document. He didn't do that because he has um, a fairly naive philosophy about the the power of love. He seemed to think that if he just got through that minefield to the end of the conversation where the two of them still were feeling good about one another and they could (laughs) hug it out, that would be by definition a success. And I love it when he was like really offended about not being trusted by Kanye. But Sam, all of this is, I take all of this, but the criticism that people will come back at me on Twitter with about you and me is, do you, you, were you holding yourself to the same standard of calling out Charles Murray about any potential eugenic related ideas as you're insisting of Lex, that Lex do with Kanye? Because that was a chummy interview too. I have no, well, no, but I have. So, if you're going to say that Charles Charles has since done something now, some years after I spoke with him, that is objectionable. Well, like you know, I would need a time machine to have have. Uh, wow, well, would, that wouldn't the claim be that he's always dabbled in a kind of you know uh, a, 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 an unseemly interest in the differences between well, well, races? Well, that was the one. That was the one point I, I raised with him where I. I I said publicly, I felt like I didn't get a satisfying answer, right? Like, what, why spend time on any of this stuff? Right. right. But if you remember, the reason why I had him on the show was not because I had this this ambient interest in IQ and you know, much less racial differences in IQ. It was that he had just been spectacularly deplatformed at Middlebury, right? You know, violently. So, and that was at the you know the, the moment where this was becoming kind of an epidemic and this was just the most salient instance of of that epidemic and so i just i decided i needed to talk to him and then i realized well i I had believed everything that had been said and written about the bell curve without ever having read it and i read it and realized okay the the most objectionable paragraph in this book isn't even objectionable right so what the hell's going on here let me talk to the guy and there's um and so that you know i had the conversation i had uh and it was not without reputational cost i can assure you but mm. yeah i don't i don't see what i would have i mean I, I still think the facts are as they were when we had that conversation um the stuff that people pr- pretend is controversial isn't in fact controversial um you know the you, differences in iq across various groups and the explanation, there is no explanation for that that anyone has offered. And Charles certainly doesn't offer one. At least he didn't then. And it's, you know, my, my basic position on all of that is that it's not worth paying attention to. I mean, it's, I mean, my, my. So just my, to avoid my, the charge of hypocrisy, what's the general rule here? The general rule is, I mean, because obviously Charles Murray did not say we need to go death con three on black people, right? So there's obviously mm-hmm. a difference of degree. Um, and then there's a difference of conduct during the interview itself. Although I think you you still cop criticism for your interviewing style, and you know, oh, why weren't you more 
Ezra Klein on Charles Murray or something? You know, why didn't you get stuck into him about the social or political or cultural context in which he's making these arguments, which are obviously going to have inflammatory racial overtones or whatever that case may be? So is the mm-hmm. is the general rule you can have the 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 warm softball interview, but only with people who are intellectually serious, and you don't like is that the rule? Well, no, it's unfair to put Charles in the same sentence with Kanye because I mean, you, you have to understand with Charles Charles Murray when you talk to notable scientists anywhere in this field or adjacent to it, no one had any bad things to say about Charles Murray, right? I mean, he was he would truly was a, a a true case of a canary in the coal mine where he had been basically a, a human sacrifice to the it was it wasn't it was it wasn't wokeness at that point it was, I guess it was political correctness he t- he touched a topic that was so taboo that it you know his reputation was annihilated on the spot now you might wonder why he has kept touching that topic or or similar topics uh, and that's you know that's something that, that I I asked him. I don't quite understand it. I mean, I guess I under, like once the, once something like that has blown up on you. I guess there is a, a maybe a perverse uh, interest in just continuing to deal with it. I mean, maybe there's you know, also a, a Brett Weinstein analogy to be drawn here. Uh, you right. know, in the sense that yeah, you you open the box, you start looking inside, you rummage around. Things look interesting. They lead you to other things. You you get a lot of pushback from other people about even opening the box. You're you know you get your hackles up and you say fuck you. I'm allowed to look in this box. You know what are you, who right. are you to tell me not to? Yeah, I mean, the, the, but the difference with Murray is that I'm unaware of legitimate criticism of the the kind of the general shape of what he's produced right it's just like it, it, it's it, his points are being treated as utterly fringe i mean just beyond the pale and the truth is they're absolutely mainstream when you're talking about that what people agree on in the field you know it's like you, you it's it's everything is upside down for political reasons and because people are drawing the wrong political and moral lesson from his findings and it's a lesson he doesn't draw right i mean i've never like i never got anything from him that suggested mm. a a racist political agenda i didn't get anything like that and I, and if i had i i would have felt very differently about speaking with him that's true i mean the yeah the the critic the the critic would say you're being overly, you know, you're being a bit Asperger's or something to assume that people just say openly the things that are actually going on. And so there's a little, like, this comes back to, you know, mm. how much do you want to read people's minds, so to speak? And maybe, maybe the lesson of the intellectual dark web and the trajectories of all of these people who you were friends with was maybe you do need more mind reading. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, I can't. Doing anyway, anything, let's, get off, let's get off. Observe the fact that there are a few people who I, I I've been surprised by, but it's yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know what. Uh, where let's else talk to about take interesting that. things. I, We've done an hour talking about colleagues and okay. free speech, and you know, <laughs> all this sort of shit. Well, well, I guess it, well, the one point that we should close the loop on, which yeah. I, 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 don't, I never really answered, is just this this question of platforming. Oh yes, really is is uh, is a hard one to to judge because, and this is something that I, I've. I believe I've said before there isn't uh, there's an uncanny valley problem here which is if the person is sufficiently awful then there's really no problem platforming them because it just becomes a you know a pure point of 
journalistic or anthropological interest to talk to the guy, right? So like I could easily do a podcast with Ted Kaczynski, right? right. Or, or, the, or, or Jeffrey Dahmer or some, you know, complete, you know, if, if Hitler were alive, you know, it would be fine to interview him because of course you, you want to hear what Hitler's going to say about his whole project. I mean, it's just like, this is the most evil person who ever lived. Let's, let's find out what's going on. But when you make someone more and more, you know, normal, you sort of bring them back, you know, closer to the fold, then you get into this this territory where you seem culpable for raising their their profile, uh, in whatever you whatever you say to them in the conversation, and you also um, you have to burn a fair amount of fuel, reminding your audience that you don't agree with them, right? And it's. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've decided there are people who I wouldn't speak to, who who people wanted me to talk to them, and I, I just decided there's there's no upside to mm. having this conversation. Yeah, I mean, there are people who can fall newly into that category based on something they do, and I mean, you know, Kanye is a, is a person like that. I mean, I think he's fairly untouchable now. I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty obvious he doesn't have anything interesting to say about anything apart from, I mean, it's, it's I guess pe some people find it interesting to see him self-destruct in real time if put in front of a microphone. But, you know, there's some level of psychopathology there and there's just you know, some obvious anti-Semitism. And um, I mean, the most, the most obnoxious thing about him is his Trumpian level of self-delusion, right? I mean, the fact that he thinks he's, you know, a genius to rival Shakespeare uh, and then can't, then can go an hour without saying anything interesting. Mm. Um, I mean, it's it, like, that's the part that is truly nauseating. Uh, but to, to, to just to close the loop on Lex, you know, I think Lex is a, a really good person who is wearing uh, everything on his sleeve and hoping to navigate every possible controversy by just being nice and compassionate and loving and vulnerable that does not give you every tool in the toolkit you need right i mean there there are people who are colossal assholes and need to be described as such there are people who for whom it's it's appropriate to run out of patience you know it, there's i mean there's a concept of 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 idiot compassion within buddhism i think this came uh, courtesy of chogyam trungpa rinpoche who himself had massive character flaws that, that needed to be criticized earlier than they were. But he gave us a very useful concept here, which is it, it, people think that compassion always needs to have as its leading edge some uh, soft and and kind of nurturing tone, right? Or, or right. angle of approach right. to everyone in every circumstance. And it's just, it's just not true. I mean, so, sometimes someone is so obviously malicious and dishonest and destructive of everything that you, you value and are right to value that it's appropriate that the only compassionate response is to sideline them in whatever way that you can, yeah, right, and and that's um, so. You know, whether that's rhetorically or in reality, I mean, there are people we need to drop bombs on. I mean, it's just that's just a fact. It's, what uh, how, it's what are changing. you just now? You now you're piquing my curiosity about the content of Kanye's ideas and about where anti-Semitism is. And like, mm. I was fascinated by Dave Chappelle's Saturday Night Live monologue, where he's yeah. kind of, you know, and I did a podcast about this, like. 
acknowledging the elephant in the room that like I do think yet again in the interests of preventing bullshit from getting traction online we have to do a better job in the mainstream conversation about acknowledging the kernel of truth that exists in that gives that starts the fire of these uh, conspiracy theories like there is a disproportionately large number of Jews in positions of power in finance and the media and we can't just keep saying no there aren't no there aren't no there aren't because then we sound like we're phonies which I suppose we are what do you what do you have a theory of the case well, I only saw Dave Chappelle's monologue once, right? So I, I, I can't say that I, I um, have done all the the moral math on it and know. I mean, what I, I think, think about it was it. fine and hilarious, but I mean, I, I was definitely laughing throughout, and then at the end, I I thought, huh, I'm not quite sure yeah. he landed that the way it needed to get needed to be landed. Well, at the end, because just for people who haven't seen it, at the end, he, at the end, yeah. he's talking about they, the people in power, and then he says something like, "But who are the they?" And that's the end of his monologue. Meaning, well, so there know, are it, Jews in power. There actually actually was a problem, but also his bit about you know you can't blame black people for the Holocaust, and but and nobody is blaming black people for the Holocaust. Yeah, right. right. So. Yeah. There were missteps in it, but generally, I thought it was very funny and brave. But there, there were missteps in his his special, the closer, where he was hammering the trans issue. I mean, yeah. I thought, and I, I think I, I think I got this from Coleman Hughes. I'm not, I believe Coleman was the first to put this meme into my head, and I, I think he's right. I, the, the the main problem with what happened with on on the closer was that. Chappelle landed on a very woke punchline. His argument in the closer was that the whole trans issue was an invention of essentially white people to get uh, the moral high ground over black people, right? It's like like you're punching down, stop punching down on my people, being the black people, from this new height of white trans victimology. So it was a strangely woke position he was was endorsing at the end. I mean, he basically he was saying black identity politics is totally valid. Trans identity politics is just white bullshit. Right, right that, that, I see. Yeah. yeah. That was a weird place to have landed given that he's he's capable of threading the needle and landing in a place that recognizes that all identitarian politics is is a dead end i mean i didn't yeah i didn't quite take it that way i I mean i took it as being uh wokeness is a way for you people to feel good about the fact that you're doing things about minorities but it just so happens that the minorities that you always seem to give a shit about are the ones that are convenient to you instead of the ones that actually require you to get your hands dirty in any way and fix you know public schools or whatever it might be so i i didn't but i i take that i take your criticism i'd have to see it again yeah, yeah, but I know. I'm, but, but generally, still, why I'm do we control everything as Jews? <laughs> like, and then what do we do about that fact without fomenting anti-Semitism? I don't think it should be taboo to recognize the the representation of any population in any specific area of culture, right? You know, for for better or worse, or you know, there's greater representation in all kinds of places for all kinds of different people, and there are historical reasons for that. I mean, I think I think some crazy percentage of people who run 
nail salons are from Vietnam in, in America, right? Like, <laughs> how the hell did that happen? I'm well, sure yeah, there's a story. Sure. Right? Korean but, grocery stores or, you know, whatever it might be. Right. Indian like why, doctors. Why nail salons? You know, it's right. like, it's, it's just, yeah. it's, um, most people know this history, but yeah, Jews for, for literally centuries were systematically excluded from certain parts of culture and, you know, given a, a an open lane in areas like finance. And so that, explains their right. you know, historically their representation there right right um they couldn't become you needed a license to be a doctor or a lawyer so instead you became right. a money changer yeah 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 or a trader but there's, there's the, the more general point that you know, the, the jewish community has always been um you know highly literate and education focused and so this you know there, there, there's a crazy overrepresentation in in science and in, you know, the, you look at Nobel prizes for pretty much anything, right? It's just, it's an order of magnitude higher than it should be. And you don't see them represented in, in professional sports as much as you might, right? I'm not, you yeah. know, wait for your Jewish Olympians. Um, <laughs> They've got their Maccabee yeah, games. That's the only yeah. thing they win. I'm sure th there are cultural and genetic explanations for all of these population level differences, you know, and maybe we will try to figure them out or inadvertently figure them out. My concern is that we will, and this goes back to Charles Murray for a brief moment, uh -oh. hopefully. Um, but my concern has always been that we will forget about focusing on these issues. We'll, we'll just stumble upon them, right? We'll, we'll, we'll begin to understand the genetics of, of intelligence, say. And um, the more we understand it, the more we, we will be able to look at the representation of the all of those genes across specific populations. And then we'll just, we'll see. We, we, once we have a genetic recipe for intelligence, we'll be able to ask the question, well, do the French have more of this than the Norwegians or vice versa? And statistically, there will be an answer. And th the answer will seem politically invidious, right? If it's something mm. that, that we care about. And it's true, it'll be true for everything. It'll be true for the genetics of violence or compassion or maternal love. I mean, all of it, right? All of it is susceptible to analysis. And we'll, we'll, again, we'll, we'll stumble in, in onto it by looking into these things generically. And my the, the punchline for me politically is that we can't care about any of this. We know in advance that it would be an absolute miracle if every group, whether you know it's a valid group or, or just a pseudo group, right? I mean, literally, you could take the group of all uh, New York Knicks fans, yeah, right. Well, right? I mean, a Just country like them. a country like Australia is a completely random group, anyway, because most of the population right. has arrived since World War II, so it's come from everywhere. And yeah, you might as well, if if there was some difference in Australian IQ than everybody else, then that would be completely arbitrary. Yeah, but it, but you would you would expect to find some difference if you just ran the comparison every which way. It again, it would be an absolute miracle if. And it's important to recognize that these groups can be validly drawn or sp spuriously drawn. You're still going to find the same thing. Uh, and, we're, and when we're talking about race, we are talking about a, a kind of a hybrid of, of what's valid and what's spurious, right? But uh, largely in, in, in the literature, I think we're talking about just people, how people self-identify, right? So you can imagine the amount of noise in the system there. Right. 
and there's a there's an interesting conversation to be had about whether the con what what the concept of race means and should mean, and you know whether it's there are cases where it's it's useful or completely useless and misleading, right? But forget about all that. Just let people identify however they want. You're going to find differences for every thing you care about, insofar as it's measurable, mm. right? And mm. and so we know that's the case. And so what? The ethical goodness of our politics is completely uncoupled from an expectation of equality of that sort, right? That is not the kind of equality that we need to care about because right. that kind of equality is a total fiction. It's never existed. Yeah, but the right. I mean the anti Semite is not necessarily hung up on such questions. In fact, racists right. don't have to be. It can just be there's a cabal of, you know, of people who all look after themselves and look after each other and are trying to subvert the you know, are trying to keep everybody else down. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's just not well it's just not true. So to come back to the anti Semitic issue of Kanye's view of it. I mean, so Kanye's is well, what's objectionable about what he's doing is not that he has noticed a disproportionate number of people in Hollywood and in music management are Jewish. Uh, you know, disproportionate when you compare them to whatever it is, three percent of the the American population, probably less now. I forget what, what it is. What's objectionable is that he's extrapolating from his experiences with. Uh, specific individuals to a group level condemnation of that entire class of people. You mm -hmm. know, because I've had a couple of bad experiences with people who happen to be Jewish, I'm now going to say that all Jews are terrible. Uh, and that seems to have been the move he's made. He also hasn't noticed that many of the people who helped him and made him money were also Jewish, right? They, they, they didn't just steal his money, they also made his career. And also, many of the people who did the same sorts of mercenary things in Hollywood, no doubt, weren't Jewish, right? I mean, so it's, it's not 100% Jewish. It's not even 50% Jewish, right? So it's he's not even doing the right arithmetic on his own experience, surely. Mm, mm. But the, the thing he's, he, he really can't do is extrapolate to a whole class of people based on the behavior of specific individuals. It just, yeah, that's, that's the course. morally crazy thing. To and, do. and I mean, I think we also need to be more upfront about what you were just touching on with like Jews having been excluded from professions. Like we need some theory of the case, I think about why Jews are uh, disproportionately represented in certain industries. I mean, I think culture has a huge amount to do with it and the love of learning and the, the, you know, the, the discipline of uh, of hard work. I mean, there are all kinds of things. I think it was Coleman actually who was saying, like, you know, why were why were Russians really good at chess and like Chinese really good at violin or something? Like, th this is not. Mm. Nobody thinks these are genetic things, but there is like a the soup that you're swimming in will guide you towards certain things. Why are Aussies great at swimming? Yes, it's warm and we have lots of beaches, but uh, you know, there is also uh, an expectation when you're young that swimming and football are the thing and cricket are the things that you do. And as yet, soccer is not the thing that you do. If we were in Argentina, it would be different. Um, so again, like growing up in a Jewish household, you're just much likelier to be encouraged into pursuits and habits of behavior that are going to end you up uh, in the positions that Kanye resents you're holding. Nonetheless, yeah. um, let's... Uh, but, yeah. But just, just to yeah. add the, the most... Um provocative point here, which it should just shouldn't be provocative. It doesn't matter that there is a genetic part of the story, if indeed there is one, 
right? It just it, right. It, politi- politically, it can't matter. We we know we know the political answer, which is we are committed to political equality across the board. We want people to have all the opportunities they can use. We want people to be treated as political equals, whatever their gender, whatever their sexuality, whatever their the color of their skin, whatever their religion. And population differences matter not at all to any of that. And that's how we're going to build a just society, you know, locally or, and globally. And so we figured that out, right? Like, so, that, so there is nothing at stake really here when you find out that the Chinese actually do have a, a gene that gives them an advantage <laughs> for the whatever. They got violin, the, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. And so what, right? It's, it's not, it's, it's, and, and no, there's, there's no individual whose ability to play the violin is affected by that finding. Not, not a Chinese one and not a non-Chinese one, right? You have whatever ability, you have whatever promise as a violinist you have genetically, and you can build upon that promise culturally and, and you know, behaviorally, and you're going to get as far as you're going to get in your case. And the population facts never affect that picture at all, right? So we, we know we need to tr- treat people as individuals. If you found out that the, the Chinese really do have an advantage for violin, and then you were looking to hire a, a violinist, and the only thing you knew about them was that they were Chinese, you still have very little information about them as a violinist, right? You, need, you actually need mm. to see them play the violin if, you're, if, you, if you care about the the competence of your violinist. Like the idea that we're ever going to be truly hostage to population level differences in a way that's going to confound our politics and cause good people to not be able to hire people anymore with a clear conscience because it's just it's all it's just all too hard because these these differences between populations are so extreme. I just think it's it's ridiculous. There's no reason to expect that. And you know, so it's something like a meritocracy is what we can fight for, but even on even beneath meritocracy, we can fight for political equality because we know that that supersedes even our concerns about meritocracy. Most people are not especially great at anything, <laughs> by definition. <laughs> we, we, we care about these people having very good lives. Their grandmothers right? lied to them when they said everybody has a special yep. ability. That makes them unique. Yeah, most people shouldn't be president. That's true. Right? Yeah, yeah. They, she lied. Nana lied. Yeah, uh, yeah. no, that's uh, that's a sad fact. I think you should put that on your Sam Harris like bumper sticker. Most people well, are not very good at but, anything. But the truth is, but the truth is, it's not even that sad, right? It's like that's when you when you're trying to figure out you know what it means to live a good life. Getting into the Olympics, you know, much less winning your event at the Olympics, is not on the menu for right. practically anybody. And won't probably make your life any happier than just right. being yeah. like, what am I least bad at? I should do that. Yeah. 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 I mean, look, I mean, look, look at someone. I mean, you know, we, have, we now have the spectacle of Elon completely misusing his opportunity to, to live a fulfilling life. Oh God, we Twitter already, we already moment. talked about Trump. Now we, now we got, now no, we got the, I mean, now the we, word Elon's come out of your lips. Here's another, another friend who I have been loath to talk about, but right. Um, it's just like, here's somebody who is just the poster boy for having better things to do. Yes. And yet he's just tweeting himself into a proper fugue state. Why is he doing it? I 
I have no idea, mm. but he's on, he appears to be unstoppable. Well, we know why, and it's because Twitter. I mean, it's because of Twitter, isn't it? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, this it's, is it's a, a this is a, a one man advertisement. It's, it's addictive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's addictive. <clears throat> I heard someone say, like, does anybody, you, you know, just look at this trajectory as a microcosm of what Twitter is doing to all of us in a way, and yeah. social media. Well, like, well, does was... anybody think that Elon is paying more attention to the things that matter and it, and has a you know, a bigger and broader and wiser and deeper grasp of what's really going on than he did 10 years ago. Yeah, well, I mean, that was, you know, frankly, one of the proximate causes of my getting off, just seeing how dysfunctional it was for Elon to be as addicted as he is to Twitter. I mean, if, leave, leaving aside entirely his buying of the platform and the, the kind of the changes he was making to it, I mean, all of that I really view as just a, a further adumbration of his of his addiction to tweeting, right? I mean, it's just it, that, that's how he got himself into that situation of having to pay forty four billion dollars for the privilege of tweeting even crazier things. It's just, it was so obviously dysfunctional, so obviously subverting of his every chance of having a less stressful, happier, healthier life. That I had to look, I, I just just extrapolated back from his colossal use of the platform to my own far more uh, calibrated use of it. But still, you know, even even by that light, you know, my own use of it looked completely dysfunctional to mm. me. And so I just, yeah, I just pulled the brake on it. Now that Elon is like doing whatever banning of journalists he's doing, I can't just let his name come up without pursuing this. <laughs> it's just mm -hmm. like a fucking rabbit hole for my brain. But like, do you still land on the it's a private enterprise free speech argument? Yeah, I, I mean, the only people who think Twitter is the public square are the people who are addicted to Twitter. And that is pretty much every journalist on earth and every person in politics. Right, so so it's it's a special cohort of addicts, but I mean, I'm not sure about that. I don't, I'm not sure that that's fair. I don't think I'm addicted to Twitter, but I always found something a little bit twee about the well, it's a private platform. I mean, I like I get, I sort of get it. Like constitutionally speaking, I get it. Free speech doesn't apply to a private platform, but <clears throat> long before, even when it was my enemies who were being hounded from the platform pre-Elon, I was always right. uncomfortable with my allies saying, well, Twitter can get rid of, you know, whoever they want to. They can they can ban James Lindsay and they can ban Majid Nawaz if they want to because it's a private platform and there's no free speech concerns. I was like, hang on, if people are functionally using it as a place to gain prominence and exchange ideas, then I don't think we should just be handing over the keys to all of that to whoever happens to be in charge of it. So I, And then now that Elon's in, I'm like, we'll see. But you could also easily just as consistently take your position of like, just let whoever do whatever the fuck. But I, I, I do think there's something, it just feels like a dodge to me to treat Twitter and Facebook as if they were, I don't know, candy companies or like the Mars Corporation or Coca-Cola or well, something. No, well, not, I would acknowledge that it's, it's not good to have these platforms be biased and, and, and more importantly, engines of misinformation and disinformation, right? There, there are many parts to this this puzzle. Um, so we sort of have to kind of track through this systematically. But one piece is that algorithmically boosted speech is not normal speech. Right. Right. So, so, you, so you, whatever your freedom of speech rights are in America or anywhere else, 
no one has a constitutional right to algorithmically boosted speech, right? I mean, and, and to make sure. it clear what I'm saying, it's just, you know, you, you tweet something in the current system that is not just you freely publishing your opinion for the world to read. That is an opinion that is getting fed into an outrage machine and amplified or not based on a choice, a business choice to promulgate the most outrage inducing and in many cases, misleading pieces of information because it has been discovered algorithmically that those things spread more reliably and faster than anything else. Right. Right. So, so an anti-vax conspiracy theory will always spread, it seems, by some perverse informational physics faster and better than a patient debunking of that anti-vax conspiracy theory. Yes. Right? And so we have people who are making billions of dollars on those those physics. And this is the businesses we we have in hand, right? So and then these people are 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 tasked with the the additional question that's getting bolted on to this whole enterprise as an afterthought, the trust and safety question, what do we do about this machine that we really can't let fly freely? Because if we do, if we take our hands completely off the the controls, it's just going to just spiral around, uh, decapitating everyone and damage our society. But we find that when we do put our hands on the wheel, we can't drive it all that well either. And we do keep crashing into people and embarrassing ourselves. And we're reliably convicted of bias you know, a lot of the time because we are biased and uh, occasionally, some of this, some of what we're calling misinformation, turns out to be true. And oh yeah, there was Jay Bhattacharya over there at Stanford, who is a real MD, and we throttled his account. Uh, and that's a little hard to justify in retrospect because those school closures for COVID don't look all that good. And that's what he was banging on about. So it, it may be that there's actually no way to fly this plane safely, right, or optimally, or what's going to be what's going to look optimal for more than 15 minutes at a stretch. So that's that's the technology we've built, right? But this is not to come back to the to the claim of that we all we need to do is look at this through the lens of free speech. This isn't just free speech. This is a new technology that's incredibly powerful, that's doing obvious harm to society, and we haven't figured out how to use it productively. Right, yeah, but yeah, the but the safely. I mean the free speech. I don't even like using the term free speech because it means it has this whole meaning in terms of like you know constitutionally protected free speech and traditions mm -hmm. of common law and governments and so on. But let's talk about just access, like the 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 I guess the conditions under which a citizen is permitted to use this technology like those conditions are the things that people are worried about. And so then the question yeah. is, do you have maximally capacious uh, conditions in which the largest possible number of people are able to use it? Or are you throttling it for some types of speech and not others? In which, I mean, certainly if you're talking about, if you're just inventing rule, if one day you're saying, I so believe in free speech that I'm even going to allow people who are posting the locations of my private jet to post them on Twitter, and then the next day when you own, you know, then you just change your mind and you say, actually, this is endangering my family to know where my jet is. 
and these journalists who also, oh, by the way, happen to be critical of me are now booted off the platform. And then the conservative people who were up in arms about the fact that some conservatives had been throttled under the old Twitter regime are now cheering on the fact that libtards at the New York Times are being <laughs> throttled under the new regime. Like, the, uh, I don't know what to make of the whole thing. I'm like, I'd rather just, yeah, either shut it down or let everyone on. It's important to notice that all of Elon's pratfalls since taking the reins at Twitter only prove the the underlying point that there may be no good way of doing this, right? Like he's, you know, he's he's having to make all the same decisions that every other social media mm. moderator has had to make, and he's making them badly because he's because he's making them impulsively and and in ways that that are kind of narrowly focused on his case and then he's coming up with post hoc rationalizations for what he did and you know I mean just to take the the Elon jet piece I completely agree with him that having the GPS coordinates of his private plane tracked in real time by all the world raises his security concerns just horrifically right I mean it's just it's it's not good I, I don't know why those coordinates are publicly available uh, I mean, I, I don't know what the government's case is for publishing all of that, but I, and I, I probably think that none of that should be published. But there's no question that he has a valid security concern around that, given his public profile, especially. Uh, but I guess every other celebrity would as well. So I get what he's concerned with there. But the thing that was you know, truly ridiculous that blew up in his face was that he singled this guy out as the clearest evidence of his commitment to so-called you know free speech absolutism yeah, he, he's going to keep this guy on even though he's he's publishing his his whereabouts and raising his security concerns and that only to then kick him off in an obvious show of hypocrisy and to not acknowledge any of that right I mean that the, mm. the problem with what Elon does on Twitter is that he does these incredibly ill-considered and destructive things which is to say he's incredibly reckless all the time. And when he does something wrong and, has, and thinks better of it and has to delete the tweet, he never acknowledges what he's done. He never apologizes. He never corrects the record. I mean, he, you know, the first thing he did when he took over Twitter was he, he's, he's spread that, that link to the, the article about uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi's husband. Uh, you yeah. know, the, 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 the hammer attack on him was not what it seemed. It seemed like it was just a, a, a gay tryst gone awry, right? And he tweeted that. And then when it became clear that the source he was relying on there was, I think it was a source that had published some an opinion that, that you know, Hillary Clinton was dead and that a body double was campaigning in her place or something <laughs> insane like that in 2016, right? So once it became embarrassing to be linked to that source, he just deleted it. But he didn't acknowledge what he, he he didn't clean up his mess, right? He just disassociated himself from it. And meanwhile, he had lent his credibility to a a conspiracy theory that really was taking off and probably still is in good standing over there in Trumpistan, which thinks you know nothing is as it seems. And yes, Paul Pelosi really was part of some gay, probably pedophile cabal. You know, I'm, I'm sure QAnon did something you know spectacular with this piece of information. Elon is is directly messaging into that fever dream of misinformation all the time. I mean, in ways that that he probably doesn't even understand. I mean, you know, his when he tweets, you know, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci, 
he's interacting with a topic that one could talk about responsibly, right? Like, I don't know what happened in at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I don't know what the actual origins of COVID are. It was never racist to speculate that that this could have come out of a lab. Should should we investigate all of that? Sure, that would be great. Are, are Fauci's hands entirely clean? Or is he culpable for some gain-of-function stuff that he does now want to talk about now? I have no idea. That's all legitimate to talk about. But when you're just tweeting in front of 120 million people, my pronouns are prosecute Fauci. Forget about what you're saying to the trans community. Let's leave that aside. But that's obviously something that could be criticized. What you are saying to all of the the conspiracists over in Trumpistan around Fauci and, and COVID origins is you seem to be saying, as the owner of Twitter, who's in the process of looking at all the files and, and leaking many of them, you seem to be saying that you have inside information. You're this brilliant technologist who has inside information about the origins of COVID, and you know that Fauci's hands are not clean. And worse still, you are turning some number of completely crazy people in your audience. Again, you've got 120 million people following you. Some number of them are completely crazy and not merely crazy. They are focused on this issue, especially. These are the people who are focused on COVID origins and it's all a conspiracy and it's all the you know, one world government coming to infringe our, our freedoms. And you are telling those people that their hatred is appropriately focused on this 80-year-old public servant who already has more security concerns than practically anyone we could name. I mean, I don't know what Fauci's life is like these days, but I guarantee you mm. he is inundated by death threats, fucking inundated. And it is completely irresponsible for Elon, who understands all this stuff, to be directing a deranged cult at Fauci. And you know, he did the same thing with his former head of trust and safety at Twitter, Yoel Roth, right? You know, he he called him pedophile and linked to something some misleading part of the, the guy's doctoral thesis. Again, totally irresponsible because he's doing that in front of 120 million people, some subset of which are totally focused on this issue, right? I mean, QAnon is all about the world is being ruled by a pedophile cult. And Elon is, is has a direct line to the, the brains of these people. So it's- You're making it's me ins- a lot it's more- It's insane behavior. I mean, you're making me a lot more worried than I have been because I haven't really paid much attention to his shit posting. I've just thought he's out of his depth, but you're saying he's more oh, than no, out of his depth. Well, I don't know where the line is between out of his depth and and truly aware of the harm he is causing or could be causing. I mean, what's tragic about this is I think Elon is a truly brilliant person who is truly committed to making the world a better place. I think he really does want good things for the world. I don't think he's he's a malevolent person, but what Twitter has done to his brain is not at all good and and there's there's a a lack of intellectual and moral seriousness to how he treats issues of real societal importance on twitter honestly it's it's fairly trumpian right it's mm, it's just mm. it's so it's so cavalier it's so bull in a china shop and who cares what breaks 
Yeah, so it, it's totally reckless. I mean, you know, for him to be tweeting that, you know, Taiwan should be a protectorate of China, right? When when he's obviously conflicted with with China, right? He's got immense business interests in China. And he just casually tweets something about the fate of Taiwan. When you're the richest or one of the richest people on earth and one of the and also one of the most famous, that does come with certain responsibilities, mm. right? He's not just any old person tweeting. Um, and now he owns the platform. It's like they don't I mean, know how how fragile, like none of us knows how fragile the system is. By the system, I mean right. like the whole, like the yeah. the sort of status quo. Well, yeah, yeah, the status yeah. quo of yeah. the globe, like the geopolitical balances, the relationship between our institutions and our branches of government, the uh, the sort of quorum that you have of buy-in for democracy among the demos, like the the fragile negotiations. I mean, it's like they've lost sight of the fact that for most people in most places at most times, life has been shitty and tribal and uh, violent. And like we've managed to erect this edifice of conciliation over the past couple of hundred years, thanks to the enlightenment and and democracy. And they just don't think that anything that their little life is going to do is going to undermine that. So they keep playing these games and yeah, you're right. Is it a bull in a china shop or is it a mouse in, you know, a, a huge glass temple that the mouse couldn't possibly affect? I think they think they're just leaving little mouse droppings all over the place, but we don't know. Well, again, yeah, part of it is the problem of Twitter itself. I and mean, people feel like they can just bullshit and talk and and promulgate their opinions and yes most people can most of the time but i mean this is you know this comes back to why i thought trump and alex jones should have been kicked off the platform in the first place right i mean it wasn't because i mean they, i'm sure they've violated twitter's terms of service in in many ways uh, as well but the thing that i've i've found most destructive about their use of the platform was their singling out private citizens for abuse and lying about them at scale mm. in such a way that was guaranteed to destroy these people's lives. Trump right. did it again and again, and Alex Jones was doing it with the Sandy Hook parents. And it was just, it was so foreseeable. It was so, it was, it was playing out, uh, you know, in, in the case of Alex Jones, it was playing out for years. I mean, we just, there was no mystery as to what, what the consequences were in the real world. I mean, he had a a crazy cult of conspiracy-addled maniacs that he was aiming at families mm. who had suffered the worst possible loss in their lives, right? And 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 the consequences were exactly as we've seen them. I mean, they're, they're Sandy Hook families that have had to move ten times since their kids were murdered. Yeah, it, I mean, it reminds me a little bit of, there's an anecdote from a New York Times, who was it at the Times who interviewed Trump like a, a number of times, I can't remember who it was, but basically had a meeting with him after Trump had been tweeting about journalists being the enemies of the people. I think I think the editor of the Times and maybe the Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, like all came together and they were like, 
Mr. President, I know this is your shtick, but you have to understand that in parts of the world where authoritarian regimes are constantly cracking down on journalists, this kind of stuff will get people mm. killed. This will get journalists killed. This will get them hounded. This will get them, like, all over the world, you tweeting something like this has a real impact on free speech and the freedom of people everywhere. It doesn't just endanger reporters here in America when they go to, you know, rallies. This is a global phenomenon. And he's, and the reporter who I heard being interviewed, I can't remember where it was, said, like, it seemed like he really got it for a moment. And he was like, yeah, yeah, okay, I, I can see that. And then, you know, they left. And three hours later, he's tweeting about how journalists are the enemies of the, of, of the people. And it's like, it's like, I don't think that Trump wants people, wants journalists in Namibia to be to have to be beheaded, mm. but I just don't think he thinks it's. I don't think he really believes that anything matters or that anything is going to happen. I just don't. I think they think that the world's going to go on and they're just going to do their shit and then things will continue. And at some point, enough. If enough people think that, then things won't go on as they were and things won't continue. The whole thing will sm- will fall apart. Yeah. Well, again, this comes back to this contrarianism and. The loss of trust in institutions. I mean, they're, they're people who are in the mode of just tearing it all down and imagining that it's that we can just have a great party in the rubble of of, of everything. It's it's the, it's the it's the rubble of a shared epistemology where we we used to be able to converge on a fact based discussion about terrestrial reality. It's the rubble of specific institutions that no longer have any authority or perceived authority. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the rubble of, of just the, the very concept that anyone can, is or can be an expert in anything. I mean, the, you know, the expertise is now a, an undignified concept, mm. right? And yet we know there's a difference between someone who knows nothing and a true expert. And we, we, we certainly, you know, Elon obviously knows this about engineering, and he should know this about history and epidemiology and, you know, any other area where, where facts can be ascertained and, and where they, they matter or might matter someday. There's something very adolescent about this moment, politically <laughs> yeah. and psychologically. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like the teenagers got control of the, the car. Of yeah, and mom and dad are wrong yeah. about everything. I mean, it, it's like it's almost Bolshevik, you know, when you talk about the rubble. It's like, you know, burn it all down and we'll figure out what we're going to do next and then it'll be better. There'll be a glorious future. You know, there'll be a thousand-year Reich yeah. and everyone's going to be happy. Um, Sam, can I pepper you with some questions that uh, that my followers uh, have uh, have tweeted sure. in for like a, a Rorschach, I guess. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll challenge you to, to answer briefly on these. Uh, okay. These questions. Uh, one of the first of which, a very important question: What is your uh, favorite cookie? I actually am a big fan of Oreos as long as there's milk involved. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you give to your 25 year old self? Um, well, it's. I think I would have gone. To graduate school sooner than I did. I, I, I had more time in the wilderness than was optimal. I mean, I, some time was necessary, but I, I was spinning my wheels for longer than I needed to. And um, so I would have forced the epiphany that I needed to go back and, and finish my education. Sooner. 
That was just a little taste of our first date questions, which you'll be able to hear all of if you subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations. Not just the questions, but of course all of our banter around them, which become a subsequent little episode of themselves. Uh, If you do subscribe, you will not only hear that, but you'll also hear no ads on any episode ever. And you'll get additional content, including opportunities to connect directly with me. You can subscribe at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com or follow the links in uh, the the podcast description. Uh, Otherwise, I'll see you next time on Uncomfortable Conversations. Thank you.